As you can tell, the kids are evacuating to go to Kids Connect this morning. Um, For the rest of you, we're going to start a new series this morning. Um, Normally in the fall, we take a break from the book we've been going through to do something else. And uh, I want to explain a little bit about that before we kind of dig into what we're doing today. And that is that Normally, we do, we do biblical theology as a church. That's where we're in a specific passage, and we're seeking to understand what that passage tells us about who God is, about what he's done, and about who we are and what we should do. And so we seek to kind of understand what that author wants to say to, to those people that he's writing to and to us. And then kind of once we've done that, we kind of extend out to see how that connects with the rest of the story of Scripture. So that's, that's biblical theology. It doesn't mean that any other way of studying the Bible is unbiblical. That's just what it's called. And another way to study the Bible and study theology is what's called systematic theology. That's when we look at a topic like the Trinity or uh, marriage or, or something like that, and we say, what does the whole Bible tell us about this topic? What does the whole Bible say about marriage? What does the whole Bible say about salvation? What does the whole Bible say about God? And so for this series that we're going through, we're going to be doing more systematic theology than biblical theology. So some weeks it's going to feel like we're in a whole lot of different passages. And the reason why is because we're saying, what does the Bible as a whole tell us about this topic? And so this this series is, is proper theology proper. And the reason why the word proper is in there twice is because theology proper is the area of theology that deals with uh, who God is and what he's like. The word theology means the study of God, but we use it to talk about everything kind of related to who God is and what he's done. And so theology proper is the specific area of theology that focuses on the doctrine of God. And we want to have a proper theology proper. And what's going to kind of be the driving force for us as we go through this, and the reason why we're doing this, are two quotes. So if you can throw up the first one, Ben, this is from uh, Dave Busby, I think. Uh, That's who I've heard it attributed to, but I can't find where he said this in this way, so maybe it's somebody else. But it says, whatever your view of God is, it's too small. And to me, this is really, really helpful, right? Because what it's, what it's teaching us, what, it's, what he's telling us, uh, and we're going to talk about this more today as we talk about the knowability of God, but that, that God is beyond our comprehension, right? He is infinite and we are finite. So we can't ever understand God fully and perfectly. So what that means is that whatever we, we think or imagine, or meditate on when we think about God, because he is beyond our understanding, whatever it is that is in my head, whatever it is that is in your head, is too small. He's bigger than that. And like, we all will admit that and acknowledge that, but the reality is, is that we don't think that way. You know, I think, well, I've studied the Bible a whole lot. I've read a lot of systematic theology books. I've read a lot of commentaries. I've read a lot of books about the Trinity and about God's attributes and all these other things. I've read a whole lot of scripture. I've got a PhD in New Testament. So when I think about God, yeah, it's, it's too small, but it's pretty freaking close. <laughs> but it's not. And so don't hear that quote and think, absolutely. You know, these people around me, Their view of God is too small. They need to hear that. They need to understand that. But mine, it's not that small. 
It's a lot closer. Whatever your view of God is, no matter how, how small or uninformed or very informed and very big, whatever your view of God is, it's too small. And so one thing we want this series to do for all of us is to enlarge our view of God. And we're going to recognize that even if that happens, at the end, it's still going to be too small. And that's a good thing for us. Because that pushes us to keep growing and keep learning because we're always going to be in that place. The second quote is from A.W. Tozer. He says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, that's a bit of an overstatement, right? Because whenever you say this thing is the most important thing about us, there's a lot of things you could put in that. Whether, whether or not you believe the gospel is the most important thing about you. Whether or not uh, you're actually a child of God is the most important thing about you. You could put a lot of things in that slot. So he's kind of overstating his case. But what he's getting at is that whatever our view of God is, whatever we think about, when we think about God, that is going to affect all of our lives. It's going to affect how we think about ourselves. It's going to affect about how we think about what we should do. It's going to affect how we treat other people. It's going to affect whether or not we obey or disobey God's word. And so whatever comes into our minds when we think about God, it impacts and affects everything in the rest of our lives. And so if that's true, if that's the case, then we should make what we're thinking about, about, what we're thinking about when we think about God as accurate as possible. It's going to be too small. It's going to be inaccurate in some ways, but we want to get closer than we are now because it is so important. And so these two quotes are kind of pushing us through this series as we're going to study who God is, what he's done. And so this week, we're going to talk about God's existence and his knowability. And and knowability is actually a word. It means like able to be known-ness. That's not a word. Uh, Next week, we're going to talk about the Trinity, and then in the the weeks that follow, we're going to talk about God's attributes. And and the goal for this series is for us to know more about who God is and what he's like, because that's going to affect the rest of our lives. It's going to affect everything we do. It's going to affect what we think and how we act and how we interact with God in his word. And so we want that picture to be shaped and informed by God's word and not just our imaginations, not just what we think or what we've heard or what we've read elsewhere. And so we're going to get into God's word and see what does it tell us about these things. So today, God's existence and knowability. That's what we're talking about. Um, And first, we're going to talk about his existence. And here, we're not so much talking about arguments that God exists. Um, There are some of those, and if you want to talk about those, I would be willing to get together with you and talk about those some other time. But we're not going to do that this morning. Instead, we're going to do what, what God's Word does, and that's just recognize that God exists and ask, how can we know that? How can we know that God exists? Um, and so there's, there's three things that work together to tell us that God exists. The first is a inner sense uh, of God's existence that he's given us. So God has, has given us an inner sense of himself. That's the first one. And the second one is really two things, and that's the twofold witness of Scripture and nature. So it's, it's two to three things, however you want to count it. Um, these two things work together to confirm to us that God does, in fact, exist. And so we're going to talk about these three things kind of in isolation from one another, and then we're going to come back to a passage where we see kind of all three of them present together. So the first one, a God-given inner sense of 
himself. So I want to throw out this, this statement that I think is true. If God created us in his image and created us to have a relationship with him, which if we read Genesis 1 and 2, that's what we see there. He created us to have a unique role in his creation, and he created us to have a unique relationship with him as our creator. So if that is true, then it's perfectly reasonable to assume that God has given us human beings the capacity to know him and be in relationship with him. I should have put that on a slide. I didn't. Uh, But what I'm saying is that if God made us for this unique role in relationship, if he created us to know him and to be in relationship with him, then don't you think that God would also create us with the ability to do that thing? That makes sense, right? God is is wise. He's all-knowing. We're going to talk about all the things that he is, and it would not make sense for a God to be that way and then make people to do something but then kind of screw it up so that we couldn't do it. That's not who God is. That's not how he works. Um, Naturally, that God-given inner sense that we have of himself is corrupted by the fall in Genesis 3. So he made us that way, but it's broken. And so where do we see this in the Bible? Uh, We can go to Psalm 14. I think is a place to start where we see this one kind of on its own. It's also in 53.1. He says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so more than seeing this inner sense of God present in Scripture, what we see is we see the absence of it. Because after the fall, we see human beings corrupted and broken by sin. And so the way God made us, we don't really function in that way until Christ comes and begins to redeem us and reshape us. And so in Psalm 14, the psalmist says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And the question we should ask in response to that is, why? Why is it foolish to deny that God exists? Why why isn't it wise? Why is it foolish? And it's foolish because... These people are are failing to recognize that they were created for something more. They're failing to recognize what the Psalms say elsewhere, where, where it's evident that God exists because of his creation. And so he's saying that us denying the existence of God is a foolish thing because we're failing to recognize who God made us to be. We're failing to recognize that we have a creator. There is someone ruling and reigning over this world. Um, we also see that God exists, and we're going to come back, and we're going to see that one again in another passage. We also see that God exists from the twofold witness of Scripture and nature. These things work together. So Scripture tells us about who God is, and then we see in nature these things verified. He made this world. We get to experience the world. So for Scripture, there's two passages I would point us to where we see in Scripture this reality that God exists. The first is Genesis 1.1. Right? Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's it. That's the first verse of the Bible. If, if, if I wrote this, I would have written it differently. I, I would throw in a footnote after God, and then in that footnote I would say, here are all these arguments for God's existence. This is how we can know that God exists. I would put paragraph after paragraph after paragraph backing up this statement that I'm throwing out there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, who is God? What's he like? How do we know that he exists? Why why doesn't Moses do that when he's writing the book of Genesis? Why doesn't he tell us all those things right there? Because he doesn't have to. He's, He's saying God exists because God made the world. The simple fact that the world exists 
he's saying is an acknowledgement that God exists. God created the heavens and the earth. There was nothing, and then God acted to cause all these things to come into being. So Moses doesn't argue for God's existence. He assumes it. The second passage that I would go to uh, is, is a lot bigger than the first one, so we're not going to read it all uh, today, but, but I would encourage you to read it on your own. And that passage is the whole Bible. <laughs> right? Genesis 1.1 isn't the only place that assumes God's existence. The entirety of Scripture does. Page after page after page after page after page, book after book after book, talks about all these things that God has done and is doing in his creation. God exists, and Scripture tells the story of his existence. It tells about this world that he made. It tells us about us as people that he made. It tells us about this grand story of redemption that he's weaving across the pages of history. The Bible testifies to God's existence on every single page. We also see evidence in nature that God exists. We see this clearly in Psalm 19. It says, uh, we read it at the beginning, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Uh, the psalmist is saying, this world around us is evidence that God exists. Look at it and you'll see it proclaiming who God is. You'll hear it proclaiming his glory. Paul in Acts 14, 17, he's speaking to the people at Lystra and this is what he says. He says, God did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. He's saying that when it rains and when the ground produces produce and when we eat it and we feel that feeling we get when we're full and we've eaten too much, he's saying that is evidence. That bears witness to the fact that God is reigning over this world. So as, as human beings created in God's image, we have this, this inner sense that God exists. And then we, we see it in his word and we see it in nature. But the question that we should ask then is if, if that's true, if, if there are these things in us and outside of us that bear witness to God's existence, then, then why doesn't everyone believe that? We see this answer in Romans 1. I'm going to read Romans 1, 18 through 23. And this is the passage where we see all three of these things coming together. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. <laughs> Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul is, is saying here that these people should have known better. Right? That, that he's saying that, that God is going to pour out his wrath against all those who are ungodly and unrighteous. Why? Why is he going to pour out his wrath on them? Because they suppress the truth, is what Paul says. Well, well, what truth is he talking about? Well, he tells us in verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Paul's saying here, it's evident. These people have been clearly perceiving these things. Who God is, what he's like, what he's done. And yet they're suppressing this truth in themselves. Paul says it's plain because God himself has shown it to them. So Paul concludes because of this that these people, all people, are without excuse. They, they, they've, they've had this inner sense of God. Uh, they've seen it in Scripture. They've seen it in His creation. And because they've denied this knowledge, they're accountable for it. They're responsible for it. Um, he says they became fools, right? In their hearts, they said there is no God. They exchanged the glory that the heavens declare for worship of idols. And then there's, there's all these statements. They suppress the truth. God has shown it to them, clearly perceived. They knew God. They became futile in their thinking. They exchanged the truth for a lie. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. They know God's righteous decrees. These statements all point toward what we've been talking about. We, we have this knowledge of God's existence. We see it in his word. We see it in nature. And yet in sin, in brokenness, we suppress it. We deny it. And this is why Paul says they're accountable. So that leads into the next topic, knowability, right? If, if we have access to this knowledge, then how do we know God? What, what can we know about God? Um, and so I want to throw out three statements here that we're going to walk through. The first one is that we can only know God if he reveals himself to us. We can only know God if he reveals himself to us. The second one is that we cannot know God comprehensively or even one small part of him comprehensively. And the third one is that we can know God and stuff about him. Uh, so the first one, we can only know God if he reveals himself to us. We see this in Matthew eleven twenty seven. Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father and... No one knows the Father, or no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So he says, no one knows God other than himself, and anyone to whom Jesus chooses to reveal him. So the Father can't be known, the Son can't be known. I think it's safe to assume that the Spirit can't be known apart from God himself choosing to reveal himself to someone. So God can only be known, his, his, his knowability is tied to his revelation of himself to us. And now here, you know, you might be thinking, Dan, you are contradicting yourself. You just spent however many minutes talking about how we should know that God exists because of this inner sense we have and because of scripture and because of nature. But now you're saying that we can't know those things unless God reveals them to us. I would say that is absolutely true. But we need to remember what Paul said in Romans 1.19. He said, For what can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. God has revealed himself to us through this inner sense we have, through Scripture, through nature. And so he already has revealed himself, and that's why we can know these things about him. That's why we can clearly perceive them in his creation. But it's important for us to recognize that God reveals himself in different ways at different times and to different people. 
And so there's, there's two categories for revelation. The first one is general, and the second one is specific. I think we have a slide here. Maybe. There we go. Yeah, so general revelation, God revealing himself to people. That's knowledge of God uh, that's available to all people in all places at all times. Everybody knows this stuff, or, or at least has access to it. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 1. He puts knowledge of the existence of God in this category. He's saying what, is, uh, what can be known about God is plain to them, for it can be clearly perceived in his creation because God has shown it to them. So all people have access to the knowledge that God exists. Specific revelation is knowledge about God that's given to specific people. Not everyone has access to this information. Not everyone can know these things. Um, this is what Paul talks about in Romans 10. So in Romans 1, he talks about how, you know, these people are without excuse. They're accountable for this knowledge. They're going to be under the wrath of God. And as Christians, when we read that, we should say, well, how can we get them out from underneath that wrath? What, what can we do so that they can know God, so that they can be saved, so they can be spared that judgment? And Paul answers that question in Romans 10. He says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So in order to get out from underneath that wrath of God, you need to call on the name of Jesus, who we know came to live a perfect life, to die a death in our place, bearing that wrath that we deserve to to save us and redeem us from our sins so that we could trust in him and in his sacrifice, his obedience could count for ours. And we just need to call on his name. But then he says... How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So In order to be spared that wrath, you need to call on Jesus. In order to call on Jesus, you have to believe in Jesus. In order to believe in Jesus, you have to hear about Jesus. In order to hear about Jesus, you need someone to preach Jesus to you. So salvation is in the specific revelation category. And so if you're someone who reads Romans 1 and thinks, man, that is harsh. All people everywhere are accountable for the knowledge that God exists and are under his judgment for it. Why couldn't God put specific revelation in that category too? Why couldn't everyone be able to clearly perceive that Christ came and died for them? If, if that's the way you respond to that, you should be someone who shares the gospel all the time. Because it's our job to make specific revelation more general. If, if, if people want to know, if they need to know, if we think they should know, then we should be people who are out there sharing the good news. And it's good news because there is Romans 1 bad news. So we should be people that are preaching the gospel to specific people so that God can reveal himself to them. In order to know God, he has to reveal himself to us. And he does this through, through his creation, through his word, uh, through the gospel. But I, I want to qualify that by saying that, that 
Even though God can reveal himself to us through nature, we need to recognize that his word is the only infallible and inerrant and authoritative source of revelation for us of God. And so uh, a few weeks ago, uh, we went on vacation to the Smoky Mountains. And there was a, a day where we went fishing, uh, me and my dad and my brother-in-law. Uh, we, went, we went fly fishing, not like normal people fishing. Um, and it was great. It, it, we were fishing on these little mountain streams where we, we like hiked down this huge hill uh, into this stream that was like just co- covered by trees. And there were rapids and huge rocks. And like this, this guide was crazy. He was like, yeah, let's, let's climb up this pretty much waterfall to get to this hole on the other side. And like we were just doing that uh, as we were fishing. And at one point I took a break and was just sitting down and watching my dad and brother-in-law fish and, and thinking about uh, where we were. And I even talked some with the guide and uh, like he asked me what I did and I told him I was a pastor and that always makes people super uncomfortable. Uh, and so I told him like I'm a pastor but not one of the weird ones. And we started talking <laughs> About, about God, and like he, he said that he kind of didn't believe in God, and I said, like, I, don't, I don't get how you can be here all the time and not believe in God. Um, and kind of through, through that conversation, through sitting there, like, I started to think about how like, this, this stream that we were fishing in, like, the water's always flowing, and the rocks are always changing. And like, normally, I think that when I think about God's creation of the world, I think it as if like, something he just did. You know, like he just, he just made the world and then he rested and he was done. But like he made the world in such a way that it's, it's changing, right? This stream that God made at some point many, 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 many years ago, like was different that day when I was there than it was the day that God made it. And like, cause this water has just been rushing against these rocks for years after years after years and changing them, changing its course, uh, and I begin to think about myself and how he's doing the same thing to me as he's remaking me and conforming me into the image of his son uh, by, by softening those rough spots and smoothing me out. And it was, it was really encouraging. Uh, but I need to take that experience and bring it back to his word and see whether or not those things that God, I don't know, showed me uh, in that moment are true. You know, like if I had been there and, you know, had this experience where I thought, you know, like God is, like, this, this, this stream is God. You know, nature is God. And then I come back to his word and study it, I'm going to see, like, that is not true. Like, that doesn't line up with his word. And so we can learn about God through his creation. And we should be people who are outside experiencing God and his creation. But we need to remember that the only infallible and errant and authoritative source of revelation that we have, the only trustworthy source of revelation we have is in his word. So we need to be bringing all of those things back to his word. So we can know God because he reveals himself to us, but we cannot, number two, know him exhaustively or know everything about even one aspect of himself. So uh, Psalm 139, David says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. He's saying, God is bigger than I am. I, I can't handle that kind of information. Job 11, 7 through 9, Zophar asks his friend, 
Job. He says, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. The implied answer to Zophar's questions are, no, of course you can't. Like, you can't understand God, Job. What's wrong with you? He's way too big for you. His, his limits are beyond your ability to measure them. Like, you cannot process all of that information. We cannot know everything there is to know about God. Period. But even more than that, because I think we'll acknowledge that, but think, yeah, but I can get a handle on this part, on this thing. Like, I can understand salvation exhaustively. Maybe not God and everything about him, but this one small thing I've got. But Psalm 145 says his greatness is unsearchable. Even this one small aspect of his being, his greatness, you can't understand that. Psalm 147 says his understanding is beyond measure. Even this one category of his existence, no, you can't handle it. Romans 11.33 says his judgments are unsearchable. His ways are inscrutable. And I think that that's not just all of his judgments are unsearchable and all of his ways are inscrutable, but like one judgment, one way. We cannot understand everything there is to know about God, and we cannot understand even one small aspect of him comprehensively. He is bigger than we are. Even the very, very, very small things about him are so much bigger than we are. And so he reveals himself to us so that we can know him, but we can't know everything there is to know about him or even everything there is to know about one small part of him. And I think that that truth should be incredibly freeing to us, right? How many of you have ever been in a place where you have felt bad or felt discouraged because you don't know enough about God? I mean, I've been there. Guess what? Everyone is there. Everyone is always there. Everyone will always be there. Like, we will never know all there is to know about God. We can never know all there is to know about God. We will always be in a place where we need to learn more about God. So we don't need to pretend like we know more than we do. Because nobody knows enough. Even even the people that know more than all of us put together don't know enough. So that should free us from that discouragement. That should put us in a place where we can be learners together. I don't need to put up a front for you guys. I can say, I need to understand the Trinity better than I do. I need to understand God's wrath better than I do. I need to understand his holiness better than I do. And you can say, me too. You can say that you need to learn about something else about him. Like That is an encouraging place for us to be together. And it's a place where we will always be together. So it's not a competition about who knows more. It's a a, a process that we're in together, growing to know more about God, and it's a process that we're always going to be in together. And don't hear me saying then, you know, because we're people that want to rush to extremes. You know, like I I was over here, well, I felt like I needed to know everything, but now you say I can't know everything, and so now I'm just going to say, well, you know, I can't know everything there is to know about God, so I'm not going to try to learn anything about him. Both of those errors are bad. 
because God has revealed himself, even though we can't know everything there is to know about him, we should be people who are growing in our knowledge of God as he is continually revealing more and more of himself to us. So be encouraged by it, but not too encouraged. (laughs) Because we can know God. When we went through Hebrews, we talked about the new covenant that, that Jesus inaugurates with his blood. And one of those new covenant promises was that uh, under the new covenant, God's people will know him. He said, they all will know me. So one of the things, just one of the things that the gospel purchases for us is the ability to know God in a way that we couldn't before. That, that inner sense of himself, the ability to see and perceive and have eyes to see and ears to hear uh, is, is redeemed by the gospel. It's, it's being made new. We're being conformed more and more and more into the image of God. And because of that, I think our capability of understanding and knowing and growing in the knowledge of God is being uh, increased and the flame is being fanned so that we can grow in our understanding of him. It's never going to be exhaustive, but as we follow Christ and as we grow in our faith, our knowledge of God should be increasing. Because that's something that Christ purchased for us on the cross. Not just freedom from the penalty of sin. Not just a, a, a righteousness that counts for ours. Not just a relationship with the Father, but also an ability to know the Father. To know Christ. To know the Holy Spirit. To know who this God is that we've been bought into relationship with. So because we can know him, we should be people who are growing in the knowledge of God. Um, First John tells us that one of the reasons Jesus came was so that we can know him who is true. So don't get hung up on the things that you can't do. Walk in the freedom of the things that Christ has purchased on your behalf. So real quick before we celebrate the Lord's Supper, I want to talk about two ways to respond to this, right? I think sometimes it's really easy for us when we talk about like abstract things like God's knowability and his existence to just kind of leave them up there and say, that's, that's good. But what do we do about it? So two ways to respond. First one is um, praise God. <laughs> praise God that he exists and that he reveals himself to us. Praise God that we can know him. Like that is a gracious gift to us and That's a gracious gift that God gives to everyone. But they don't all have the knowledge that Jesus came. So praise God that he exists, but also praise him out loud to other people as you share the good news with them of who Jesus is and what he's done. Uh, That's the first one. The second one is grow in your knowledge of God. Right After this sermon, all of us should be willing to say, I don't know God as much as I can. Right now, I need to grow in my knowledge of God. Because we're all in that place together. And so, do that. Spend time in nature, outside, seeing how the heavens declare the glory of God. Spend time in his word, learning about who God is and what he's done. Pick up a book that will teach you about who God is and what he's done. Um, and if, if you're somebody who, who doesn't know where to start, you say, I want, I want to grow in the knowledge of God, but I don't know where to start. So, number one, talk to somebody. Say, hey, I don't know where to start. And maybe they do or maybe they don't. If they don't, 
take that person, find somebody else. But here's, here's three books I want to throw out to you that uh, can help you grow in the knowledge of God. The first one is called The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. It's like 112 pages. Super short, super easy to read. That quote that I read earlier is from there. Um, it's it's a, a phenomenal book. Um, the second one is None Like Him. That's a book that a lot of the ladies went through a little while ago by Jen Wilkin. She's talking about the ways in which uh, we can't be like God, his, his incommunicable attributes, and we'll talk about those in a few weeks. But that one would also be good. And the third one that I would recommend would be Knowing God by J.I. Packer. That one's longer, it's harder to read, but it's worth the read. Um, except for one chapter, but that's, that's not what we're talking about today. <laughs> um, all three of those books would, would put you uh, in a place to learn more about God. Um, one more thing I want to say about this, this series is that it's obvious, it should be obvious after the sermon, but like we're, these sermons aren't going to be exhaustive. First of all, it's impossible, right? I cannot tell you everything there is to know about God's existence and how we can know him because I don't know it and I won't ever know it and you won't ever know it. So even if I could know it, you couldn't understand it. Uh, But second of all, that's because at BC, we don't ever want the sermons to be all that we can tell you about a topic. Because again, it's impossible and it would take forever And we want you to leave here not with, well, I've got all the answers. I know everything I need to know. We want you to leave here with, I need to spend more time in God's word. Because this is the only infallible and inerrant and authoritative source of knowledge about God. Not this. Or anyone else who gets up here. And so our goal is to say, here are things you need to know about. And you need to know more about them than you're going to get from right now. So go home, spend time in your words, learning more about who God is and what he's like. And I hope that each week of this series does that for you, that you leave here wanting to know more about these things that we've talked about. And again, if you don't know where to start with that, uh, come talk to me and I can point you to some places. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, the Lord's Supper is a reminder for us that God has revealed himself specifically to us. If you're someone who has trusted in Christ, he has made himself known to you in a way that he has not made himself known to other people. And so as you celebrate the Lord's Supper today, you should be incredibly thankful that he has given you that gracious gift, that you understand what it means. You know that the cup represents Jesus' blood, which was shed for you and for your sin. The bread represents his body that was broken for you and for your sin. So you should celebrate that, recognizing that that is a unique, gracious privilege that God has given you. And you should ask the Spirit to cause you to be more concerned about the other people who haven't gotten that specific revelation yet. Um, And if you're here today and you're someone who hasn't yet trusted in Christ, you have received that specific revelation today too. Jesus died for you. He paid the penalty on the cross for your sins that you should have paid. He lived a perfect life in your place that counts for you. And Paul says that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you want to do that, 
call on his name and say, Jesus, save me. Because you've heard about him, so you have enough information to believe in him. And spend some time considering your hearts before the Lord. Whenever you're ready, come and celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. If you're, if you're new here, uh, we, we celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday. There's, there's two tables set out up here. Uh, there's juice and bread, and you can come forward and celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. You don't have to be a member of BC, but we would ask that, that, that you would only do this if you're someone who is a Christian, who's trusted in Christ, because if you haven't done that, then, then you don't understand what you're celebrating yet. But again, we would love to explain that to you. So I'm going to pray, and then Dan's going to come and, and play some music. And while, while that's happening, uh, begin preparing your heart to celebrate the Lord's Supper today. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you and your greatness and your mercy and everything about you is beyond our comprehension. That you created this world, that you created us that you created us with the ability to know you and be in relationship with you and that you redeemed us out of brokenness even after we had rebelled against you in sin. God, I thank you that we get to know you. Thank you that we get to know about your son and how you sent him into this world to save us and to redeem your broken creation. Pray that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, that you would send your spirit to to work on us. That you would send your river of grace to smooth out the rough spots that still exist in our hearts and our lives and our minds. And that thoughts of your existence and, and your no ability wouldn't just stay in the abstract, but that you would bring them to bear on our lives and how we live and how we think about you. Thank you that you are bigger than all of our thoughts and imaginations. In Jesus, in your name we pray.